Welcome to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Well, and if you're not aware, some of the folks on that video are part of our youth ministry staff. And so I don't know what they are communicating to the rest of our young people. And by the way, if you do not know the answer to that question, who was Anna, uh, then hang on for just a couple of moments. Uh, let me take you for a moment to the opening words, the opening chapters in the Gospel of Luke, uh, primarily chapters 1 and 2 that record for us the birth narrative of John the Baptist and the birth narrative of Jesus, two chapters that we often go to during the Christmas season. But as you are probably aware, uh, those two chapters give us some details include some pieces that are not found in the other Gospels. Even the entire birth narrative of John the Baptist, unique to the Gospel of Luke. And so what we know about John the Baptist's birth, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, uh, the very close correlation uh, in their lives to what happened in the life of Abraham and Sarah that we studied uh, just a few weeks ago as we began this series. Uh, for example, the angel appearing to Zechariah, the fact that his wife was past childbearing age, they were both older. And so you watch the promises of God unfold. And then there are pieces about uh, the birth of Jesus that are found in the Gospel of Luke that are not found elsewhere uh, in the Gospels as well. For example, after Mary has gone through the period of purification, that mothers went through after a child was born, according to the law of Moses. Joseph and Mary take the baby boy Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem where they will dedicate, where they will consecrate Jesus before the Lord. Again, the law of Moses uh, asked uh, parents in that Jewish age, asked parents to bring their firstborn male to the temple in order to consecrate, in order to dedicate that child to the Lord and the appropriate sacrifices were to be offered. It is on that occasion that Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus encountered two older people in the temple, uh, Simeon and Anna. I want you to listen to the words that describe Anna. We've only got three verses, Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 36. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years, and then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem, for God to bring his promises to fruition. Uh, throughout this series that we have called Unqualified, looking at different characters in Scripture, throughout this series I have posed the question, so who is your favorite character of faith in the Bible? Uh, let me tweak that question just a little bit this morning. What character of faith in the Bible has had the most influence on your journey of faith? 
and it may be the same person that you would identify as your favorite character, but who in Scripture has had the greatest influence on your journey of faith? And if you say Jesus, that's a right answer. But beyond that, as you think about men and women and boys and girls in Scripture, who's had the greatest influence on your journey of faith? And then let me take the question just a step further. Think about your life, whether you're 10 years old or 64 years old or 84 years old, who in your lifetime has had the greatest influence on your faith? What man, what woman, what boy, what girl? As I think about my journey of faith, I can name a lot of folks who have influenced me, men and women, some younger, some older. But given the fact that we're exploring the story of Anna today, let me share with you some of the women in my life who have had an incredible impact on my journey of faith. Women who were incredible women of faith and who touched and blessed my life in a variety of ways. Women of faith like Kay Lyons. Kay was the wife of one of my elders in Kentucky. Kay grew up in a minister's family. She was the daughter of a man who preached, and after she and her siblings went away to college, her parents, kind of late in life, decided to go do mission work in Jamaica, which also influenced Kay. And so she and her husband, Tommy, still close friends of ours, were heavily involved in the missions ministry for that church that Debbie and I had the privilege of serving in Kentucky. She was an incredible encourager. And so for the nine years that I preached there, Kay was at the top of my list in terms of people who would encourage me in my preaching and in my teaching. Women of faith, like Barbara Allison, also the wife of an elder in the church we served in Louisiana before moving here. Just a few years before we moved to that church, Barbara had been involved in a car accident, and following that accident, she struggled with severe headaches that would often leave her bedfast. On those occasions when she was up and going, she still struggled with those headaches. She amazed me at the way she served the Lord, at the way that she went full steam, in, fact of the fa in, in spite of the fact that her head might be pounding. She was the most joyful, exuberant woman I have ever met. And when I needed somebody to pray for me, I made sure that Barbara Allison knew about that prayer need. She was at the top of the list of folks that I wanted praying for me. Women of faith. Women of faith like Pat Slate. She and her husband, Phil, did ministry throughout their life. They served as missionaries in England. Phil was one of my professors at Harding Graduate School of Religion when we were doing graduate work in Memphis. He later moved to ACU. After he moved to ACU, we were in Lubbock. I was in Abilene one day visiting with Phil in his office, and Pat walked in. During the course of the conversation, she said, Barry, I need an up-to-date picture of your family. Kind of caught me off guard. Up-to-date picture? Pat, I didn't know you had a picture of my family. And she said, yeah, when we visited you and your family in Kentucky a few years ago, I was preaching in, in Kentucky, doing some kind of work in my doctoral program. They had come through to visit. She said, when we were there, you gave us a picture of your family. I need an up-to-date picture now. And I'm like, well, that's great, but why do you need a picture of my family beyond the fact that we're just the best-looking family you've ever seen? <laughs> and then she proceeded to tell me about how she prays 
for ministry families and missionary families every week. And she does it with kind of a picture album prayer journal. And she said, I look at the pictures of those families as I pray for them. And I pray for families in North America on Monday and families in South America on Tuesday and families. And she just works her way around the globe each week. She'd been praying for me and my family and our ministry for years without me even being aware of it. Women of faith like Barbara Brown Taylor, interestingly enough, an Episcopal priest, but one of the most phenomenal preachers I have ever heard. But beyond her preaching, the books that she has written that have impacted my faith, especially those books that point to spiritual disciplines and that point to how does a minister respond when burnout comes in ministry. Her books have challenged and encouraged my faith along the way. And so as I think about my journey of faith, I think about a lot of folks, but since we're talking about Anna, I think about those women of faith who've been a part of my journey. And as I think about those women, I also think about widows because Anna was a widow. I think about women like Elizabeth Eubank, and I've shared stories regarding her on other occasions. She was a part of the little church that I grew up in in South Central Kentucky. She became a widow in her late 20s with five young children, never remarried, so heavily involved in that little church, teaching a women's Bible class on Sunday mornings, extending hospitality like no one I've ever met. In fact, I cannot even number the number of times that she would invite the entire church of 45, 50 folks to her home for Sunday dinner in the midst of raising five kids. Enormous influencer in my journey of faith. I think about women of faith like Laura Brown, likewise a widow at a young age, had no children. She was a part of the church in Bradford, Tennessee, where Debbie and I served right out of college. We were in her home often. She was confined to a wheelchair, and yet the ways that she blessed, not just both of us, but in particular the ways that she blessed Debbie as a young minister's wife, encouraged us, guided us, mentored us. I think about incredible women of faith. And I would encourage you to do the same as you think about those who have influenced your life. And then let's turn back to Scripture and think about women of faith in the Bible. Some that we know fairly well, like Sarah, the wife of Abraham. We talked about Abraham and Sarah at the beginning of this series. Naomi and Ruth, Esther, Rahab, Deborah, one of the judges that our Sunday morning adult classes will explore this summer. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene, Lydia, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, Phoebe. And then some other women that we don't know as well. Jochebed. How many of you know who Jochebed is? Show of hands. Got a few. Rather than giving you an assignment this afternoon, those of you who know, tell me who Jochebed is. Mother of Moses. Jochebed and her husband Amram. Other women that are not as well known. Miriam, Isaiah's wife. Three women, Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis, that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 16 as co-laborers with him. We look at all of those folks, and we could identify a lot of women and a lot of men. We look at all of those folks, and the reality is many times a lot of those folks are relatively unknown. And so when you ask a question like, who's Anna? Who's Anna? Then you get a response like, well, I'm a Bible major, and I don't know who Anna is. So Brady Pickett and I are going to be studying together every afternoon uh, for a while. 
What's even more fascinating is many of these folks kind of serve behind the scenes. And I suspect all of them would say, I'm unqualified. I don't feel adequate. And yet they were incredible people of faith as they put their trust in God. And so circle back to Luke chapters 1 and 2 for just a moment and think about the broad spectrum that Luke paints as we step into the story of Jesus. All of whom, again, I think would have said, I'm unqualified, I'm inadequate, and yet they trusted God. And so you've got Zachariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. We know nothing about those two except what Luke chapter 1 tells us. Even John the Baptist, we know a good bit more about him from all of the gospel accounts. But what we discover is John finds his identity in Jesus. Even to the point when folks say, are you the Messiah? He'll say, no, 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 no. I'm only here to pave the road for the Messiah. I must become lesser in order that he might be greater. And yet even in that statement, it is John claiming his identity. He trusts in the promises of God. Simeon. This older man in the temple in Luke chapter 2 when Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Jerusalem, this older man who had been promised that he would not die until he saw the Christ. And so when he sees this baby, he takes the baby Jesus in his arms and he praises God. And then the story of Anna. Again, in some respects, all of these folks are behind the scenes. But they are incredible examples of faith as they trust the promises of God. Which, by the way, is kind of the question we're posing all summer long. So how do these folks, and then how do we, respond to the promises of God? Think about Anna for just a moment. Again, only three verses in Scripture that describe Anna for us. One, the, the verse opens by saying she was a prophet. She was a prophet. You'll recall from our study of the roles of men and women earlier in the year that there are a number of women in Scripture that are identified as prophets, spokespeople for God. And so think about the incredible messages that Anna may have been speaking to people there in the temple courts. And then I love the fact that the verse says she was very old. So show of hands, how many of you identify with that? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. She was very old. She was married for seven years before her husband died, and then she was a widow until age 84. No indication that she had children, and so I'm assuming not only is she a widow, but she is childless. In that first century world, not only do we talk about the fact that women sometimes had few rights, a woman who was a widow, and even beyond that who had no children, many times would have been pushed to the fringes of society, would have been pushed to the margins, would have had very few rights, which I think always begs the question when we study the Gospel of Luke because of Luke's emphasis on folks who many times are on the fringes, women and children and lepers and Samaritans and the poor. I think it always begs the question, is it possible that we might do the same, that we might push people to the fringes, that we might push people to the sidelines as if they have no rights, as if they don't matter to God. Surely, surely that would never happen in our world. I can only imagine that Anna struggled with her identity. She loses a husband, no children. Who am I now? Very few rights, dependent on the community. I suspect that she felt unqualified, inadequate. I suspect she may have struggled with her identity, perhaps even with her faith. 
And yet it is so obvious that Anna trusted God. Did you notice the line? She never left the temple, but she worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Uh, Given what I said a few minutes ago about some of the women who've prayed for me, what do you think it would have been like for Anna to pray for you? That if you're in the temple courts and you're there to worship and suddenly there is this incredible woman of faith. In fact, you've seen her every time you go. She's worshiping. She's fasting. And she says, can I pray for you? What would it have been like for Anna to pray for you? This incredible piece that she plays in the story of Jesus. Maybe all of which speaks to the ways that God can work through all of us when we claim again, when we discover again, the identity that God gives us. And the reality is sometimes that is a struggle. That is a journey. And so to continue that conversation, let me invite Debbie Paxton to join me on the stage. And if you'll turn your attention to the screens for just a moment. Debbie Paxton. My husband and I have been married for 39 years. We have been at Monterey for 35 years. We have two children, our 35-year-old daughter and our 32-year-old son. I am blessed at Monterey to have the honor of working in the prayer ministry. We have a prayer room in the Great Hall, if you have noticed that, behind the French doors. And during both Sunday morning worship services, we have people in there volunteering to pray for the service, for Monterey members, and it is such a joy and a privilege for me to get to do that. I'm Debbie Paxton, and I'm unplugged. And so, Debbie, as the video indicates, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're not a widow like Anna, but I suspect there are pieces of Anna's life with which you identify. Can you share with us kind of your journey as uh, you reach the point of claiming uh, your identity more fully with with Christ? Well, yes, Uh, I can so relate to those who feel inadequate and unqualified. For all of my life that I can remember since I was a child, I didn't feel like I measured up in my wife, in my role as a wife, as a mom, as a Christian, for some reason I felt like it was performance-based acceptance. And if I did well, then I measured up. But if I didn't do so well, then I was not worthy. So I compared myself to others, and I just struggled uh, all my life with feeling complete in Christ. Do you want me to tell about the breakthrough now? Okay. So about 10 years ago... uh, having lived all my life feeling very inadequate, uh, I was offered an opportunity to facilitate a small group Bible study. Of course, I was very hesitant to say yes. I did not feel qualified to do that, but I prayed about it, and I felt like that God was telling me to go ahead and say yes. And through leading uh, this small group Bible study, I finally realized that God had gifted me that way, and I felt his favor. Probably that was really the first time I really felt his favor because I was doing what I was created to do, and I was fearfully and wonderfully made. 
So obviously being able to use your gifts and leading yes. that Bible study for women. And that Bible study is still going, Yes, as I recall. Yes. But step back for just a moment because you also mentioned feeling inadequate as a wife, as a mother. How, how did that play out? Well, oh, wow. I don't even know where to start. Let's see here. Um, you said some things earlier about uh, wanting to change your husband. Oh, I forgot I mentioned that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have a very wonderful husband, but for the first um, several, several years of my life, I made it my task to kind of remake him, you know, kind of remold him. He, there were some little edges that needed to be sort of softened off. And so I, um, yes, I made it my goal to, to do that. And there came a point in time when I realized, well, actually, I called a dear friend, and I just felt like I was at the point of desperation. I, I realized it wasn't working, and it wasn't really the right thing to do. And so anyway, finally, I came to surrender and celebrate the man that my husband was and just um, begin to be at peace with who I am and who he was and rest in that. I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that, that's good. Because I think the reality is all of us, husband, wife, uh, single, uh, all of us may struggle with feeling inadequate, and so we're going to go fix it somehow. Yes. Uh, like you said, uh, Jeff almost became uh, your project, and Jeff oh, is sitting yeah. over here somewhere. I don't think he's <laughs> abandoned you yet. No. Uh, yeah. So all of those different pieces related to your marriage, your family, leading that small group study. But I also know your involvement with uh, the Walk to Emmaus community. In fact, several Monterey members have been on a Walk to Emmaus. If you're not familiar with that, it is basically a, a weekend retreat that has blessed and changed a lot of people's lives. And Debbie served as uh, the lay director for a Women's Walk to Emmaus back in February. So tell us how that came about. Well, I went on my original Walk to Emmaus in 1996, and it was just awesome. I loved it. And I worked in the Emmaus community community for several years after that, but I had been away from Emmaus for 15 years as of last July when they asked me to serve as a lay director, and when they called me and asked me to pray about and think about being a lay director, which is the person in charge of a walk, you get the team together, um, there's lots of responsibilities that go along with that. And I'd been out of Emmaus for 15 years, and my first thought, I didn't say this to the person that called me, but I was like, no way. There is absolutely no way I can do this. I have not been doing this in 15 years, and I am completely unqualified. But I said I would pray about it. So for the next week, I prayed about it. I sought wisdom from others. I looked at the scripture. And one of the places that I went to in scripture was about Moses. In Exodus 3.11, Moses says, Who am I? Exodus 4.13 and 14a, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Exodus 4.14, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Okay, so maybe I am called to do this. Well, 
I realized I needed to say yes. But I needed to have a theme scripture for the walk. And the first one I thought of was 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is all you need, for my power is made perfect when you are weak. Well, that, that was me. And the walk, Barry was our spiritual director. We had several Monterey members that worked the walk. It was just incredible. When I came home, I wrote, I wanted to keep track of all the blessings that came from the walk. And I, had I, I wrote down 108 blessings that I received from saying yes. And this one, I'm gonna, when I get home today, I'm going to write this down as 109. Because of that experience, I have had the opportunity to share today. And in early assembly, I mentioned I, I'm old, but some of you are as old as I am. How many of you remember the song, Count Your Many Blessings? Name them one by one. And I wonder if in all of the experiences that God calls us to, we would do that very thing. We might end up with 108, 109 blessings. Yes. And so, Debbie, let me circle back for just a moment to the opening video because you referenced the prayer ministry that you're involved in. In fact, Debbie's kind of the primary coordinator of that prayer ministry. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the ministry is originally when it was formed, it was called the Aaron and Her Ministry. And we have a picture here of Aaron and Her holding up the hands of Moses. I'm sorry, Joshua. Um, so the picture of this ministry is those of us in the body of Christ are holding each other up. Just as Aaron and her held up Joshua's arms. And when his arms were up, they were winning the battle against the Amalekite, Amalekites. And when his hands were down, they were losing the battle. So in the prayer room, we are just called to hold each other up. And we would love to have volunteers. If you are a prayer warrior, it is very simple. The prayer room is out in the Great Hall. You can see it behind the French doors. And uh, you're in there by yourself unless someone comes in who needs prayer. And we would, we would just offer to you, if you need prayer, come in. If you want to pray, contact me, and I would love for you to be a part of our ministry. And, and basically, it's a rotational system where yes. there's somebody in that prayer room during each of our assemblies praying for what's going on in this assembly. And so it's not like you're in there every Sunday. Debbie will be glad to schedule you. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this earlier as well in the first assembly. I take great confidence as I stand on this stage every Sunday to preach to know that there's somebody in that prayer room praying as I'm preaching, praying for us, praying for me. And so we would encourage you to be a part of that as well. Debbie, thank you for the ways you serve and bless this church. Let's give Debbie uh, our appreciation for the ways that she serves. Let me invite those who are serving communion to go ahead and make your way to the back. We're going to utilize what we have shared together this morning to transition into our time of communion, and uh, Debbie's going to share thoughts with us. And so, Debbie, if you'll lead us into communion. Okay. Well, I wanted to share some something with you, and whenever you get a chance, if you'll put that there, it is. Okay. In the fall of 2016, my daughter had a serious illness. She had just moved to Corpus Christi, and she was a teacher. And beginning in, well, I think it was in November, she was just having a terrible time. She had 
and, and we couldn't find out. She was brand new to Corpus Christi, and we couldn't find out. We didn't ha really have an established doctor. She was having to miss her classes, and it was just a really, really trying situation for her, her very first semester to teach down there. Well, anyway, during the Thanksgiving holidays, Jeff went down there, and they went to the medical clinic, and they were trying to find out what was wrong. There were all kinds of strange symptoms. And um, so anyway, it never did clear up. And she came home for Christmas, and the first week in January, she was put into the hospital um, and was given a blood transfusion. And this is the blood that Jennifer received, a unit of blood. One week later, I mean the transformation, the blood, the power in the blood made a huge difference of healing in her life. One week later, the doctor said he had never seen hemoglobin recover so quickly. And one more week, she was able to return to Corpus Christi for the spring semester of her teaching. And I, I, I wanted to share this. Um, because oh, the power in the blood of Christ, um, it trans, this was not, of course, the blood of Christ, but the power in the blood that transformed and healed my daughter. And, of course, the blood of Christ is way more powerful than that bag of blood was. But um, I just wanted us to think about the power in the blood and, of course, the body and the blood that have been sacrificed to save us, to heal us, to set us free. Do you want me to pray? Yep. Okay, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come and worship you. Father, we thank you that you saw forth to send your Son to save us. Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sins. We thank you for the body of Christ. And may we be the body of Christ in our world. May we um, seek opportunities to lead those who are hurting to you. We thank you for the, the, the cup and the bread and we, we thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. In his name, amen.